there's no place like home. Wizard of Oz, the main character, Dorothy, who's played by Judy Garland, famously says, there's no place like home. And most of us would agree. Sure, traveling and taking trips is fun, but there's just something about coming back home and sleeping in your own bed that we all love. So to be forced away from your home, especially for an indefinite period of time, is a dreadful thought. In fact, the word that we use to describe this immediately evokes fear, exile. We associate exile with words like banished, hopeless, foreign, depressed, lonely. Exile describes the period of time at the end of the Old Testament where the people of God were taken into captivity and moved far away from home and moved into a foreign place. And they began to learn to live in a culture where they didn't have influence, to live in a culture that didn't believe the way that they believed. But what's exciting is that in the midst of the fear and despair of the exile, a few heroes of the faith emerge. There's a great new articulation of their faith, and there's a new trust in God that develops as the people learn to live in a world that doesn't believe the way that they do. And one of these men is named Daniel. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 1, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we walk through the story of Daniel this morning, I want you to remember Romans 12, verse 2. It simply says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. So Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you in here are not native to Indiana? Meaning you weren't born here, you didn't grow up here. How many of you would would that be? Okay, a couple of you, a few of you. Now, my guess is there was some acclimation that had to happen. Um, So, for example, in Indiana, when... 
you say the word tenderloin, you're probably not referring to a cut of beef, but in Indiana, tenderloin means this, right? That's what we're talking about. Um, Most people in the United States call this, go ahead and throw that up on the screen. Most people in the United States call this a vacuum cleaner, but people in Indiana call it what? It's a sweeper, right? If you told somebody on the East Coast or the West Coast that you were eating puppy chow, they would probably think that you were eating dog food, okay? But we know that puppy chow is a popular Midwest snack, a pretty delicious one, by the way, right? In Indiana, when you hear the words, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines, you immediately know we're talking about the Indy 500, In Indiana and in the Midwest, if somebody says knee-high by the 4th of July, we immediately know that they're talking about the height of corn. Uh, My wife and I were born and raised in Indiana, but in 2007, we moved to Texas. And when we moved to Texas, we had never visited Texas before. We had never been there before. We were just these transplants that were dropped into what to us was a very foreign land. And we learn there's a certain way that that Texans assimilate you into their culture. There's certain things they say, certain things they do that's just not like the rest of the world. For example, the vocabulary there is something else. What we would refer to as a a grocery cart or a shopping cart, in Texas they call it a buggy. Somebody would say, okay, can you grab a buggy? And I'm like, do I look like I'm Amish? You know, like, what, what are you talking about? But they meant a shopping cart. In Texas, they always use the phrase fixin' to. They, they say, I'm, uh, I'm fixing to, to, uh, to, to go to lunch. I'm fixing to work on the car. What are you fixing? Like, no, I'm about to. I'm, I'm getting ready to. Uh, of course, in Texas, they don't say you guys or you all. They say what? Y'all, yeah. Uh, the weather in Texas took a lot of getting used to. Now, there's four seasons in Texas. They're just different, okay? There's almost summer. Summer, still summer, and winter. Only in Texas, when it's above 100 degrees, will somebody say it's a bit warm. Really? It's it's an oven. What do you mean it's a bit warm? Now, in the area where we we lived, near Dallas, it would occasionally get some ice or some snow, maybe like once every other year. And it was always entertaining to me when this would happen because people would treat it as if the apocalypse was happening. Uh, there'd be like a 15% chance of flurries and like schools are canceling, uh, grocery stores, the shelves are empty, like everybody went in full panic mode. In Texas, chivalry is not dead. In Texas, guys will open up doors for girls, it doesn't matter the age. In Texas, you hear uh, people say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Perhaps bigger than anything else, Texans are proud. You've probably heard the phrases before. Everything's bigger in Texas. Don't mess with Texas. Proud to be a Texan. And as funny as this is, there are these moments where we get in positions where we just assimilate into cultures without really knowing it. Where we just start shopping with buggies and referring to people as y'all. And it's really easy for those types of things to happen. And in the story of Daniel, we get this amazing snapshot of this kid who's facing enormous pressure to be something that he's not. He's facing enormous pressure to be something that he's not supposed to be. 
Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So the Babylonians have come in. They have taken over. They've taken everything out of the temple. They've defiled a lot of things in the temple. And a lot of this is about wealth and money. And so they've taken these things, they've gathered it up, and they've also decided they're going to take some of the people with them. And so they start start taking these young men of nobility. Verse 4 describes these young men that were without any physical defect. They were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, you have to understand that Daniel was around a 15 to 18-year-old boy at the time. He was taken from his home, from his family, from his teachers, from everything that was familiar to him. He was probably studying Torah and the Old Testament scriptures at this time. He was brought to a place that was completely foreign, a place that was far from home, a place where his family and friends weren't there anymore. And in the middle of all this, at such a young age, he faces this enormous pressure from above. Now, I don't know the sorts of things that were running through your mind when you were 16, but when I was 16, there was a couple things that I was focused on. I wanted a car, and I wanted to keep my girlfriend. Like, those were the two things that were important to me. And here you have Daniel, this young man who's facing this enormous pressure, He's got the weight of an entire nation riding on how he behaves. Babylon was the superpower of the world at the time. It was one of the great wonders of the world. The city had 60 miles of walls that were 300 feet high, 80 feet thick, and they even, they even dug them 35 feet deep into the ground so that nobody could tunnel under them. There were 250 towers. There were brass and gold gates. The wealth of the city was incredible. It was a very religious city. There were 53 temples and 180 altars to their gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to bring these men in, to assimilate them into the culture, and then to get them to advise him on how to assimilate the rest of the population in the culture. And the way that Daniel conducts himself in a culture that is hostile to his faith and values teaches us what it takes as followers of Christ in our world today to live in a way that honors him. And if we're going to do that, the first quality that we must possess is resistance. Resistance. In verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself in this way. And here's where the story gets really interesting. 
And where it turns from a story of captivity and nations and political issues to something bigger. And something bigger than a little integrity issue. This is when the story becomes about how God works when his people are faithful. See, Daniel was fine with the name change. He was cool with the new clothes. He was fine with the new place. He was fine with with all of that. But there came a point where he said, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm not going to do this. And it came down to eating the food from the king's table. It sounds like such a little thing. It's just dinner. It's just a meal. But the issue is that this was ceremonially unclean for the people. It wasn't kosher. The blood wasn't drained from the animals the way that it was supposed to be. And so this created a huge problem for the Israelites. You can find it in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Daniel had learned this all of his life. He probably knew it by heart. He knew that this was not the right thing for him to do. The other problem was that all of the food at the king's table was first offered to his gods. So it was offered to the gods, and then it was to be eaten by the people. And Daniel said, no, no, I I can't do that. And his boldness at such a young age is amazing because it would have been so easy for him just to say, you know, it's just a meal. They're not asking me to do anything major here. It's just dinner. And Daniel not only possesses this integrity, but also has a huge trust in who God is. I can't help but to think in that moment that as Daniel is faced with this issue of eating food from the king's table, that he's not thinking back to his people as they left Egypt long before. If you remember, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. He led them into the wilderness. And the first problem they run into when they're in the wilderness is there's no food. And in Exodus 16, the people began grumbling and complaining. And they said, even when we sat at the tables of the slave drivers, at least we had food. Even when we sat at the, at the table of the Egyptian empire, at least we had what we needed. We had the nourishment that we needed. We had the food we needed. And so what, do, what does God do? God sends manna from heaven. He says, if you live in a way that's set apart, if you live in the way that I've called you to, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide nourishment for you. I'm going to provide strength for you. I'm going to do all these things. You can live in a way where you're not conforming, but you're continuing to be transformed. I will provide for you. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, the invitation to Daniel and the rest of the exiles is to cease taking food and nourishment and life and hope from the empire. And what's being offered here is different than a diet. It's not just a simple moral dilemma. It's a deep conviction that God offers us a new bread. That there's a way to live that doesn't revolve around the empire. And it doesn't revolve around the promises of the empire and the promises of this world. I don't know what it was like for you when you took driver's ed, but for me, it was a part of of school. We we signed up for it, and most everybody in my class, we took it together throughout the summer. And I'll never forget 
they showed us these, these gruesome movies, these, these videos to, to deter us from, from distracted driving. And these, these videos were, were so dated when I saw them. They were like these slasher films from the 1980s. And um, they, they taught us, here's what can happen when, when, when you drive too fast or when, when you drive distracted or when you listen to the radio. And so what happened was when, when I started driving, you know, I didn't listen to the radio. And when I started driving, I didn't drive over the speed limit. You know, I was right here. I had both hands on the wheel. I, I was focused. I was scared to death of those videos. But then something happened along the way where I just started driving a little bit faster and it was okay. And I turned on the radio and I didn't get in an accident. And I talked on my brand new bulky cell phone and and it was okay. And the question is, how can at one moment we be completely convinced that something is dangerous and deadly and unwise and a moment later our behaviors don't line up with our actions? Where our actions don't line up with our convictions? And there are some of you who would have never dreamed that you'd be behaving like you are right now two or three years ago. You would have never believed that you would have crossed that line. You would have never believed that that you've done what you've done or lived the way that you're living right now. And, And here's what happens. I've seen this play out at youth camps and summer retreats. That there's a kid who raises his hand and he's had the, the, this, this life-altering experience, and he tells the whole group, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm done. I'm not going to live that way anymore. And do you know what happens? He's going to come back home, and he's going to face the same temptations. And if he has not decided in his heart that he's going to begin living with a deep conviction, I'm telling you, not a whole lot's going to change. Because as believers... We're really good at having preferences and really bad at being people of conviction. We have lots of preferences on how we'd like to live or how we imagine we could live, but very few convictions where we say, whatever happens, I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm not doing that. I'm not crossing that line no matter what. Daniel was a man of conviction. Verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. So how many of you, if you really thought about it, you know that right now you're living with a lot of preferences and a lot of gray areas, but probably not enough conviction. And how many of you, if you were honest, when it came down to it, you would say that there are areas of your life where you'd compromise. And probably some pretty important areas where you'd compromise. Let's be honest here. Daniel's choosing vegetables and water over a good meal. Something good is being offered to Daniel. They're eating lamb and they're eating steak and they're throwing all the spices on it, all the good stuff. You know, they're drinking sweet tea and Daniel's like, no, I'm good. I'll just take carrots and water. There are moments where what the world's table is offering us is really appealing where it looks really good. A St. Elmo steak is better than carrots. But I want you to think about this. 
What's the one thing that is sitting on the world's table for you that you know is the one area where you're inclined to compromise? It's that place where you know that if you're put in that situation, you'll probably make the wrong choice. What's that one area? Sexual sin? A temptation to lie? A temptation to to cheat a little bit in order to get ahead? Gossip? Your language? A little off-color humor? A relationship that's gone bad? And it shouldn't be hard for us to figure out what that one thing is. And if you're saying to yourself right now, ah, I just don't know, you're probably lying. Because the truth is, the world has laid out a really nice buffet for us. And it's very tempting to assimilate into what they're doing. It's very tempting for us just to, to give up a little bit of moral ground so we can gain something. It happens all the time. But here's the problem. The bakers of this world and the food of the empire and the king's table is filled with enticing things, but they make promises they can't keep. The promises to Daniel were, if you don't eat this food, you're never going to get ahead. If you don't eat this food, then the king's going to be really angry with you. If you don't eat this food, you'll never make it in this world. You'll never have any influence. You'll never be able to do the things that you want to do. You'll just end up being another guy and another slave. You'll never get ahead. And some of you who work in the secular world, you know what it feels like. You know what it, what it feels like to know and to think, if I don't participate in those inappropriate jokes at work, then, then I may not fit in. If I don't boast about myself and, and make myself feel great in, in front of everyone else, then, then I may never get ahead. No one may ever notice me. If I don't fudge the numbers a little bit, then then I won't get the promotion. And that was the promise that Daniel kept hearing. Again, Walter Brueggemann says, we have become victims of the junk food on the table of the empire, of social ideology, the attractiveness of consumerism, the killing seduction of security and despair. We've been silenced by our hunger for the world. And my question for us is, Who would we become if we lived off the hopes of our dominant culture? Who would we become if we lived off the hopes of America? If we lived solely off the hopes of our dominant culture and what they believed, who would we become? We'd become like the world around us. There'd be a growing isolation. We would long for authentic community, but we would settle for false community. There'd be despair and anxiety. There'd be indifference, and we'd lose a little bit of our humanity all the time. There'd be selfishness, and there'd be pride. There'd be a loss of hope. The second quality that Daniel possesses that we need to possess is dependence. A deep dependence on God. We read in verse 9, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord, my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king then would have my head because of you. 
Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Proverbs sixteen seven says, when a person's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he caused even his enemies to make peace with him. Daniel knew how to conduct himself. I love Daniel's spirit as he goes to the people in leadership above him. Because he doesn't walk in and kick down the door and say, this isn't right. I'm not going to live this way. You can't make me do this. He doesn't lay down the law. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. He just walks in with great humility and he comes up with a creative solution. Just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days and let's see what God does. Complete dependence on God. You know, I love it when Christians stand for the truth. And I would guess that most often we don't stand enough. But I'm concerned at how the church takes stands. Oftentimes there is a spirit of pride and arrogance displayed in the way that we stand up for the truth where we look more like Westboro Baptist than we do Jesus. And Daniel walks in, he's not offensive. He's not judgmental. He's not threatening. He didn't organize a protest, call a lawyer, or talk about his rights and how his rights were being violated. He walked in with great humility, authenticity, great respect. And he said, just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days and let's see what happens. And that leads to the third quality that Daniel possessed that we need to possess, and that is confidence. He had great confidence in who God was. We read in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. I like here that Daniel kind of became that kid who asked for more homework at school. Do you get that here? Like all the other guys are now eating vegetables and drinking water because of Daniel, which I think is kind of funny. But in verse 17, there's this real simple phrase. It just says, God gave. To these four young men, God gave. And here's the principle that you and I need to understand. God is not searching for someone who is influential that he can make faithful. He is looking for someone who's faithful that he can give influence. Jesus, in the parable of the talents, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And I'll tell you, my temptation is to believe that God is out there and he's looking for the sharpest. He's looking for the brightest. He's looking for the best looking. He's looking for the athletes. He's looking for the celebrities. And he's gathering them all up because he's going to do something great with them because they've got influence. But when you look at Daniel, God doesn't give Daniel anything when Daniel receives this position. He doesn't give him anything when he knows that he's going to be in the presence of the king. He doesn't give him anything when the opportunity comes. 
He doesn't give him anything because of his talents or because of his good looks or because of his wisdom. But the moment Daniel is faithful, God gives him influence. He took a man of faithfulness and consistency and he raised him up to be a man of influence. And I'll tell you what, I see young people in the church all the time who want to skip the first step. They want to be people of influence. They want to change the world. They have a a heart that wants to make an impact in the kingdom, but you have to be faithful first. You have to be faithful. And that's what we take from the story, is that God gives when Daniel is faithful. And we've got to understand There is a temptation for each and every one of us to eat from the king's table. There is a nice feast that is laid out before us every single day. And if we don't become people of great conviction and people who say, I'm drawing a line in the sand here and I will not cross that line, what we eat from the table could short circuit all of the plans that God has for our lives. It could short circuit all of the plans that he has for us. There were two Swiss men who set out on January 12th, 1997 to be the first people to circle the earth in a high-tech, solar-powered, pressurized hot air balloon. They were going to go around the world in this balloon, and it was a $2 million project. The balloon itself cost $1.5 million, and they invested a ton of money into it. They invested a huge portion of their life into it. And so they began going. And soon after their launch, there were flames that started going up into the cabin. There was this kerosene leak that made the entire operation go down. And this balloon, the whole craft, crashes down in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. The problem was a failed fuel clamp that cost $1.16. That was the problem. A piece of metal that cost a dollar brought down a $2 million project. And you know, it's so easy to look at our lives and say, man, it's only food. It's just dinner. It's just a small lie. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody saw what I was doing. I was far away from home. And so as we close, I just want to ask a few questions. Number one, What is the world set in front of you that's tempting you every day? What is it that's right in front of you that could short-circuit the plans that God has for you? Number two, where are you tempted to live out of preference instead of living out a conviction? And number three, could you trust God enough to eat from the new bread? Could you trust him enough to say, God, I don't know if I'm going to get that promotion, but I trust you. I don't know what I'm going to do if this relationship ends, but I'm going to trust you. God, I am scared to death and I am lonely all the time, but I'm going to trust you. God, I don't know how we're going to make it financially if we give the way that you've called us to give, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to provide everything that I need. And just like the Israelites leaving Egypt, I know you're going to give me nourishment and the food and the abilities that I need. 
And just like Daniel, I know that you're gonna give me what I need to make an impact in this world to be an influencer. I really believe that when we are faithful, God gives us influence. That when we're faithful in the little things, he gives us opportunities in the big things. And so as we come to a time of prayer, I just want us to go before God and say, God, this this is what's on the table for me. It's yours. And I want to go from a person of preference to a person of conviction. I want to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going there anymore. Are you ready to draw a line in the sand today? Let's pray together. God, when we look at the life of Daniel and we see everything that he was up against and the values of a culture that was foreign to him, God, it's very easy to see ourselves in the world that we live in today. Where oftentimes we feel like we're alone. We feel like no one else believes the way that that we believe or has the same values that we have. But God, I thank you for Daniel's example. That we can see a man who, who resisted graciously, humbly, that he was a man who was completely dependent on you, who, who had extreme confidence in who you were. And God, I pray that these are the same qualities that we would possess as we try to navigate life as a Christian in this world. God, would, would we make the, the commitment today to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going there, but I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna honor you. And I'm gonna trust in you to provide what I need. God, I pray that all of us would have an increased trust in who you are. God, that no matter what obstacle we're facing, we know that we can can bring it to you knowing that you are going to provide. God, the greatest need that any single one of us have is the need to have our sins forgiven. And God, you offer that in the person of Jesus Christ. You have provided a way for us to be in relationship with you. And so, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. And if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, God, I pray that they would not leave this place today without without calling on the name of Jesus, accepting Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, putting their faith and trust in him to forgive their sins. And God, you've promised to give them the gift of eternal life. God, I pray that they would identify with Christ through the waters of baptism. That baptism would would be a, a line in the sand moment saying this is who I am and there's no turning back. God, may all of us move from being people of preference to people of conviction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.